let's return to our seats now. We're going to dig into James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, a few verses surrounding the faith of Abraham and the faith of Rahab. Rahab the prostitute and their good works. Uh, Beginning in verse 20 of James chapter 2. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's a very interesting passage this week because I was able to sort of live with the person and the picture of Rahab the prostitute and her faith. When you think of that title, prostitute, you could immediately think, man, this is sort of different than your average Christian title, Rahab the prostitute. But when you think of it in terms of the gospel, and you think of the fact that someone can be delivered from the grip of immorality, prostitution, and be brought as a child of God, as someone who's clean, someone who's transformed, someone who gets to start over, someone who has a new mind, the mind of Jesus Christ, then you begin to see Rahab the prostitute as a beautiful person. I've never seen her before, obviously. Um, I don't have a Facebook picture of Rahab. I don't have a picture from the past. She was here a long time ago. But because of her story and because of her life being transformed, she is a beautiful person to me. Someone similarly to um, John 4, the woman at the well that Jesus ministered to, the Samaritan woman, a woman who had five husbands, right? But was made beautiful and, and was an evangelist, just like Rahab. Rahab has been said to be the first evangelist in the Old Testament and very much like the woman at the well, a person that was sharing faith in Christ because of a transformed heart. Think of other people like the Proverbs 31 woman. Um, If you read Proverbs 31, it's written by King Lemuel. Many people in church history believe that King Lemuel is another name for Solomon. If that was Solomon who wrote Proverbs 31 as he wrote the majority of the rest of the Proverbs, then who is the woman that he's talking about? Who was the model of womanhood in Solomon's life, it was Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was, you know, coming out of a scandalous background, having committed adultery with King David. And yet this could be a woman, a godly woman's testimony as she was a believer and described as an excellent wife and mother. Beauty, beauty found in the gospel. I was reading in 1 Kings 2 about how Solomon, when when his mom, Bathsheba, approaches him in the throne room to ask Solomon a favor, Solomon 
bows, probably came off the throne and bowed before his mother in honor and respect. Why? Because the gospel had changed her life. She was a a respectable, respectful woman in the eyes of her son. And actually, he invites her up alongside him on the throne, on on his right hand, which was a symbol of the highest honor, and dialogues with her in 1 Kings chapter 2. When you are brought from the domain of darkness, specifically you women, and you're brought into the family of God, his kingdom, you're a co-equal heir with men, with the rest of the family of God. Now, I'm not a person who believes in egalitarianism or, you know, I'm a complementarian. I'm a person who believes that men and women are different by design. Men are heads of home. Uh, Elders are men, from my perspective. Biblically, I believe pastors and elders are men, but I believe women are esteemed as co-equal heirs with the mind of Jesus Christ and have theology and influence and biblical spirituality within the church and need to be esteemed and honored in that way. And they need to be standing up. You need to be standing up as women of God who have heads full of the Bible and backbones of steel. The Sarahs, the Bathshebas, the Rahabs, the Ruths, the Esthers, the Marys of the Bible. The people who are the Deborahs, the people who go for it with the scripture and evangelize and share Christ and do the work of what we're all called to do as advancing the kingdom of God together. And this is what Rahab is to me. She is the woman who came in to Jesus's presence, like the woman who was the woman of the world. Remember that in Luke chapter 7? The woman who was a woman of the world who opened up the alabaster of ointment and poured it over Jesus's feet and was so overwhelmed with forgiveness that she had received that she's crying and crying and weeping over his feet. Now, this is not normal, right? I mean, Jesus is in the house of Simon the Pharisee and she's sort of interrupting But she gets it and knows who she's in the presence of. And so she's just gushing over Jesus and using her hair to wipe up and wipe off Jesus' feet. It's a picture of beauty. That's Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. She's mentioned as Rahab the prostitute six times. Three in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. She's esteemed and honored as the mother of Boaz in the line of Jesus Christ. Remember in the story of Ruth, Ruth and Boaz? Rahab is Boaz's mother because she commits treason against Jericho. She goes against her people, against her way of life, against everything that she has, and she risks everything for God and follows God's people and enjoins herself into God's family and then ends up being part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. So to me, Rahab the prostitute, that kind of name is a name that's beautiful. Family of God. James here makes a comparison. He compares Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, the patriarch, 
with Rahab, the pagan Gentile woman of Jericho, who's the prostitute. And he says, if you look at verse 25, that Rahab and Abraham are the same in terms of their faith and works. Look at this. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. They were both Abraham and Rahab justified. They were both affirmed by God as a picture of grace. You know, this week I was uh, just reflecting on an on a sort of a interview I had with a missionary. Uh, my secretary and I were able to sit together and, and watch um, and interact with a missionary who's um, ministering in Sweden to prostitutes and to people who are involved in sex slave trafficking. And it was an incredible sort of eye-opening interview. She's from Alaska, but she's over there with her husband and family in Sweden and doing frontline ministry there. And I said, you know, how did you get involved in this kind of ministry? You know, rescuing people um, in terms of working with the police and they go in and they rescue people, minors who are involved in this slave trade, this, this kind of sex trafficking scheme. And then also they, they go to rallies and they minister the gospel in the midst of gay and lesbian rallies. I mean, that's what this person is all about. I said, how did you get involved in that? And she said, well, it all started when I went on sort of a missions training um, session out in Athens, Greece. And I think she was there for a year or so. And she said that she would walk the streets of Athens and would be walking back after a day of evangelizing and training to where she lived. And she would see prostitutes and she would see, you know, men and women prostitutes and transvestites on the street. And she would sort of look over there and kind of walk by and be moved with compassion for them. Kind of like Jesus when he was moved with compassion over the crowds. And she noticed one particular gal who was there that she believed the Lord was laying on her heart to witness to. And she kept, you know, walking by day after day. And this male transvestite came up to her one day that was big and brawny and just said, hey, can I ask you what time it is? And it sort of unnerved her, and she thought, oh boy, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to stay here or not. So she told him the time and kept going. But what happened is that she felt prompted in her heart to go back, because she saw that girl there as well. And she just thought to herself, you know, I haven't even asked these people their names. And so in this sort of boldness, she went back, and the man wasn't there anymore, and the lady just was. So it was just her. So she asked her her name. And then when they began to talk, the missionary gal said, can I pray for you? I'd like to pray for you. And this woman said, yes, I'd like you to pray for me. And she reached her hands out and took the missionary girl's hands, because she was, uh, the girl was only in her early 20s at this point, took her young hands and said, yes, I would really appreciate it if you'd pray for me. And so she began to pray out loud for her. And as she was praying, the gal who was involved in prostitution was responding in the prayer saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. So this missionary was forever locked in to wanting to minister to people locked in to that kind of immorality. 
And I said, have you seen people come out of prostitution over the years? And she said, yes. People have become disciples of Jesus Christ. People have been swept out of and snatched out of the slave trade as well. So I said, wow, there's more to learn from you. And I know that we have a lot of this sort of stuff going on even in Alaska. And so we need to be thinking as a church, what should our involvement be going out into the streets and helping people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because, by the way, if Jesus was ministering to the prostitutes, maybe we should too, right? Well, this is the story of Rahab who was rescued out of that kind of sin. Now, what I want to sort of put in front of us is, again, the clarification that works don't save. They do not save. Rahab's works, where she welcomed the spies of God's people into her house, that work wasn't saving her. When she lowered them down later on by a scarlet rope down out of her window, that that work was not saving her. What that work was doing is that work was affirming that she was the real thing. One guy that I read said that Rahab's works were not really that big of a deal. I mean, just welcoming people and lowering them down. But I want to tell you something. These works were profound. They were amazing because she was putting her life on the line and she was committing treason against the people of Jericho. And James points these works out to say, look, this is a woman of God that in terms of her faith is on par with Abraham. Abraham, who's this George Washington figure, the father of the faith, this symbol of the nation of Israel, the sort of Jesus figure of the Old Testament, compared to Rahab, who's a prostitute, so she's an outcast in her own city. She's a pagan, according to the Jews. So she's also against the religion of God. And she's just in her own little house committing immorality, probably overseeing a brothel. So she's completely stereotyped and stigmatized as different than a godly person. But James's point in James 2 is that faith without works is dead. And so when you have living faith and when you have genuine faith and when you are squeezed in rough circumstances and situations where you've got to make a choice, faith is going to make the right choice for God. And that's what Rahab did. Now, we know that people are saved by grace through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 Galatians 2 and Romans 3, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And so Paul was using the word justified differently in Romans and Galatians. He was fighting a different battle. Remember that from weeks before? He was talking about people being born into the kingdom of God. He's talking in terms of like an OBG doctor who's, who's seeing babies come into this world. And Paul is saying, look, you can't earn your way into heaven. You can't climb a ladder of Old Testament law keeping to be saved. On the other hand, James is addressing a different issue. And he's saying, look, kind of as a pediatric doctor or a geriatric, geriatric doctor, he's saying, look, let me give some analysis to the church and say, look, if you're saying you're the real thing, but when you're squeezed in your life circumstances and no good works come out, if there's nothing active in your life, then you might be dead 
If you're only trusting in what you know, then you might be dead. If you're only someone who had an emotional experience like the demons who believe and shake about it, then you might be headed to hell with the demons. Even the demons believe and shudder. You need to have a faith that works. You need to have a faith that makes you a doer of God's word. You need to be a Christian who wants to do something like a person like Rahab. And we talked about how there's a difference between being on the outside of the NFL draft. (laughs) Remember, those of you who would admit that you like the NFL. Okay, anyway, there was a draft. I mean, last time when I told about the NFL draft, there were people going, there there was a draft? Anyway, but anyway, yes, there was a draft where people draft players for their team. And once you are drafted onto an NFL team, you know what that means? You're an NFL player. Even if you tripped and fell on the way up to being congratulated publicly that you're in the NFL, once the contract is signed, you are an NFL player, even if you never made it out on the turf. That's like Paul's version of justification. Once you believe and exercise faith, you're in. God sanctions you as a Christian. The contract is signed, sealed, and delivered. It's like you're the thief on the cross. Today, this day, you will be with me in paradise, no matter what you do. On the other hand, what James is saying is that once that contract is signed, that's going to mean something for you. You are going to be a player. You're going to be somebody who's hitting, who's grabbing people, who's catching balls, who's making touchdowns. And every time you're doing that on the field, you know what? That's, that's affirming that, yes, you are a football player. You're like Rahab the prostitute who's out there making a call. You're like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's putting his neck on the line. A person who was willing to be part of a conspiracy to overthrow Hitler. It's a faith that's active. You can't contain it. It's inextricably linked to works. The works don't get you into the kingdom of God, but they're going to happen if you are the real thing. Augustine said, look, do Old Testament works justify you? No. However, if you're the real thing, you're going to have those works. They're going to show up. It's Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher from the 1800s. He said, these kinds of works, they look absurd. They're radical. It's Abraham. Hey, Abraham, take your son up to Mount Moriah and be willing to sacrifice him. That doesn't sound like the law. Thou shalt not kill. But this is what God wanted him to do as a circumstance to show his faith. A faith that would even believe that God could raise his son after he would do such a thing and raise him in resurrection. That's what Hebrews 11 attests. And then you have Rahab, who's in a wartime environment. It's like put up or shut up time. And she's aware that the walls are going to fall and she's not safe in her city and she needs a new city. She needs to move out of her domain into a new city. Do you ever do that in your mind? You think, man, I've got my cities. I've got my work city. I've got my family city. I've got, you know, my, this suffering, you know, city, this disease city that's going on. And I'm living comfortably in these worlds. But I've got a city that trumps these cities. My citizenship is in heaven that trumps this city. And God has moved me out of this city. I've been moved out of Jericho into a different kingdom. That's my city. And that's what Rahab did. That's what Christians have to do. 
That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus to the death. That's what it means to leave household and job, be willing to for Christ. That's what's going on with this story. Let's look over in Joshua chapter 2. I kind of want to just look through this story. Joshua chapter 2. The story of Rahab. As you know, Joshua was sort of the general leader over Israel. He had assumed the position that Moses had. Moses was this incredible leader of Israel who was chosen to be the spokesperson for God's deliverance of his people out of exodus, out of tyranny, out of judgment in Egypt under Pharaoh. The plagues came, the people were crossing over towards the promised land. It was only an 11 days journey to Kadesh Barnea. You can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, 1 and 2. But they grumbled and complained and wanted their own way. And so God judged that first generation, making them wander around the wilderness for 40 years. Second generation was up to the plate. They're ready to cross over into Jordan. And there was a man who God selected who was a spy before. Remember, before they wandered for 40 years, 12 spies, one of them was Joshua, the son of Nun. And God said, listen, Moses, you're not going in the promised land. Joshua, you're taking over. So Moses, the hero, dies and Joshua is at center stage. And he's probably fearful because God in Joshua 1 is saying, look, you need to be strong and courageous. And oh, by the way, this isn't just kind of a happy, easygoing Sunday school Bible story where God's nation's just going to move in and partner with these pagans. <laughs> no, God was going to do another miracle work where he lays, the, he, he stands the Jordan water up as a heap on one side and sort of lays out the road for them to walk into Canaan into battle. This is a battle march. Now, there were women, there were children. Um, Joshua was, was told in verse 10 and following to prepare the officers, to prepare the men of valor, strap on your sword, make, make um, arrangements for your kids, make arrangements for your wife, make arrangements for your families to, to be okay. But you're going over into battle. And oh, by the way, the first city across the Jordan is Jericho and it's walled up and protected and you're going there. So Joshua, just as he had been sent as a spy to spy out Canaan 40 years before, is now sending over two spies to check out the lay of the land in Jericho. If you look in chapter 1, um, verse 16, all the army was saying, all that you've commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. And the Lord followed this on in verse 17, They said, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with us as he was with Moses. So the people are pumped up as these spies are going over. But look at verse 18. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. So these are serious, sobering, warlike times. I want you to sort of feel the drama of this. This is a do or die mission. You're either all in or you're going to be executed because we mean business and this is God's territory that's being taken over to be possessed. Go over there to possess it is the the phrasing behind this mission. And so the two spies go in secretly, Joshua 2 verse 1. 
And they come to the prostitute's house. Now, a lot of people will sort of soften that and say it's the uh, Rahab was really an innkeeper. So she was just welcoming them in for lodging and was showing hospitality, just like Abraham showed hospitality to the three angels in Genesis 18. First Clement, this early church father, sort of softens at that. No. Rahab was a prostitute. This was probably a brothel. I mean, why? I don't exactly know why God's spies go there, except that they could fly in under the radar there as people who would be undetected. But guess what? They were detected immediately. The king of Jericho, verse 2, is hearing that they're there and sending people to bring these spies out because he knows that they're they're searching to find a weakness in Jericho so that they can crumble this city. Verse 3, the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. What does Rahab do? But the, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they are from. Now, here we go, right? Here's the big ethical debate. Was this a lie or not? Yes, it was a lie. Yes, she lied. Even in the original language, in verse 4, there's a Hebrew word for that word in the ESV that says true. She's saying, true, the men came to me. But I didn't know where they came from. And then she goes, and by the way, they went that away. <laughs> that's, that's her technique. And trying to resolve this is not really my main mission this morning. But let me just throw out a few ideas. First of all, it's never righteous for us to commit a sin of lying. We're never supposed to lie. But I would say that this also is a wartime circumstance. And just like when we sent troops over to execute Osama bin Laden, we were not saying, hey, we're here and we want to just be truthful and upfront and honest that the army is here and we're here to slay your leader. Right? That's not how wartime ethics work. And so she's understanding things, I believe, in terms of a wartime ethic and is committing treason against Jericho and protecting God's team, God's side, because she's going to side with God's team. And so she sends the people on the other way. And God documents this action as an act of faith. That's what I see here. A lot of people will say, you know, it's more the higher ethic of her faith is overshadowing the lie. No, I think it was a wartime circumstance. Very similarly to how Moses' mom, when Moses Moses was born, hid him in a basket and sent him down the river. The same word for hiding is used in Joshua 2 as in Exodus 2. And that's sort of a wartime circumstance. I think it's where Jesus says, look, you need to be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Reminds me of the story of Corey Tim Boom, who as a child would um, be part of hiding the Jews during the, you know, Gestapo Times up in the Netherlands where Germany was taking over up there and they'd knock on the door and the Jews would find refuge in a room that was called the secret room that they had made at the top of the house, the furthest place away from the front door where a panel could be slid back and these Jews would go into a wardrobe for refuge. 
It's exactly what Rahab was doing here. And what I like is how Rahab in verse 9 begins to explain why she was doing what she was doing. Because it's her heart of faith that just is that center stage and gushes out. Look at verse 9. She went up to the pursuers. Uh, she, she went up to the spies who had been up in the roof in the stalks of flax. Verse 6, it was harvest time. They were hidden up there. And verse 8 says, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that, you've, that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the, or that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. So she realized that this was God's team and that they were part of it. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And look at what how she characterizes the Jericho, the people of Jericho in their hearts. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So all of Jericho had this demon-like faith. They, they knew that God's power was coming. They knew that the walls were probably in jeopardy and that they could be overthrown by God's people. But Rahab moved from a heart that was melting under fear to faith and action. That's the difference. That's the difference. That what, that's what puts Rahab on the map. That's what makes her special. It is. And she knew that she needed to side with the right team. And so she actually made a promise and commitment to them that she would send them on the way and not tell anybody where she had sent the spies. And the spies made a promise back to her that, hey, when we come to overthrow Jericho, you're going to be saved alive. And so she lowered these spies down by a red scarlet rope. And then that rope was left out in the windows so that she could be found with her family later for rescue. Guess what? A lot of people make a lot of um, the symbolism of a red scarlet rope. And some people say, you know, well, that really doesn't mean anything in terms of the cross, in terms of salvation. But I really do think it is a symbol of redemption. Very similarly to how God rescued the firstborn children in Egypt and how the family was just to slaughter a lamb across the doorpost as a way of protection and as a sign of deliverance. And even in Exodus 12, the same warning is given that the spies give Rahab here, where they said, look, whatever you do, don't go outside of the house. If you want salvation, if you want to be saved physically, then you stay in the protection of God's plan. And that's what Rahab did. She stayed inside, and her family did, and they were rescued. They were rescued physically, and they were rescued spiritually. It was a faith that was alive and alive enough to work. Let's move over to Joshua chapter 6. I want to just tell you the end of this part of the story. In Joshua 6, you have Rahab, who's in her house with her family. She's shared the message of what's going to happen. She's 
warn them to all stay inside. And God's plan is set up where the Levites and and the men are going to surround the city and walk around the city for six days, one time around the city. And then on the seventh day, they're to march around the city seven times. Look at verse 15. It says, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh day, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. That's sad because one of the elders um, at our church who plays the trumpet made a joke between services and said, you know the note that they played as they you know, went around the seventh time and played that trumpet note was the note B flat because that had to be the one that, that made the walls lay down. I know. Like I said, it's sad for, for people to sow thoughts like that in my mind that are going to come out in the pulpit later on. I need to scold Cal Dunham for that. All right, verse 17 And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now look at this. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Now, in verse 20, it says the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. But something happened before that wall fell down. And that's what we see in verse 22 of Joshua 6. Joshua 6, 22 says this. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. The promise is kept. The significance of what she had done is paying off. And they are spared. Look at verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household... And all who belonged to her, listen to this, Joshua saved alive. The word Joshua means God saved. God saves. It's the same word used of Jesus, the word Yeshua in the New Testament. That's the same word for the word Joshua in the Old Testament, which means God saves. Significant. It says, and she was has lived in Israel to this day. So she integrated herself into the family of God. And it says, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Her whole household was saved because of her faith. It reminds me so much of the Philippian jailer who, after the walls shook when Paul and Silas were singing, or Paul and Barnabas were singing in the prison. It's actually Silas. They're singing in the prison, and the thunder and lightning's happening, and things are shaking. And the only person, people that are left in the dungeon is the Philippian jailer and Paul and Silas. And the Philippian jailer's ready to kill himself because he knows that if prisoners have come free on his watch, it's his neck. And he sees that Paul and Silas are there and he says immediately, wow, the power of God's been on display. And this is amazing that you're still here. What must I do to be saved? So he gets saved and then his whole household believes. And I believe that they are having believers baptism happen as everybody sort of is revived and revivals happening and spiritually made alive and saved. Do you know that you could have that kind of effect in your household? As a believer, someone who stands up and is willing to put your life on the line and say, you know what, I know that 
the world or your advice or, or temptations or circumstances say go that way, but I'm going this way for God. That kind of effect really does have a ripple effect in the family, doesn't it? The people that love you most are, are receiving that splash effect of the gospel. And oftentimes God opens eyes just like he did Rahab's household here. I mean, she was, she was the Madonna of the culture. She was the Christina Aguilera. She was the Lady Gaga of Jericho. And you know what? She is the godly woman of faith who's forever in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and forever found in the line of Jesus Christ as this prostitute who believed and was transformed forever as a woman of faith. All right, let's just bring this to a close with a few applications. Actually, before we get to the application, let me just lead us into it with the last verse in James 2, because this sort of seals the deal and brings everything full circle. Verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, just like a dead corpse cannot be resuscitated. You could do mouth-to-mouth on a dead corpse and nothing's going to happen. Someone who's not spiritually alive is not going to have action. Now, my oldest son is almost 10, and what you do with a 10-year-old is you watch animal reality TV, or at least that's what we do. We, we, we looked at a, a little YouTube video recently, and or this last week or whatever, and it had this crab down in the ocean's um, floor who was attacked by some tiger leeches. Just one leech at first, it crawls out and it kind of grabs a hold of the crab from the underneath the shell. Some of you probably watch this thing. The problem is, is I start watching it and we keep watching it, right? Because the thing is parasitically finding its way in and in the chink in the armor and sucking the life out of the crab. And you're watching the crabs, the crab trying to get the leech and then there's some sort of emission from the leech as it's making headway, no pun intended. And then other leeches attack this crab until ultimately the the crab breathes its last little gasp of breath and is just lifeless like this, dead as a corpse floating in the ocean, never to be resuscitated again. You know, and, and we're enjoying this. This is part of our relationship, right, as we're watching this. But what came to my mind, right, what came to my mind is that that's, that's exactly the morbid picture that's found in James two twenty six. It's a person who thinks they're alive, but really they're just dead. They're just a corpse, lifeless, but not hopeless. Not hopeless. Because the gospel is what gives us new life. It's what brings us alive. And if you think that you're alive and you're not yet alive, then you need to believe and then come to life. That could be what's wrong in your life. Or if you are alive, but you feel like you're dead, you need to be active in your faith and do something. You know how I talked about witnessing at Walmart and Walgreens and Best Buy last week, and that was a fun time. Well, that's gotten me in trouble because people are expecting me now to witness. I I went to Walmart, right? I went to Walmart, and somebody heard my voice and said, hey, you know, I recognize your voice. And they came around the aisle, and Riley and I were there shopping late into the night because we were trying to finish off her list of, you know, what we need to get for her outdoor ed thing that's coming up. And 
right? So we're there, and, and this family's around said, hi, yeah, you, you know, we're coming to your church. And all of a the sudden, um, they looked at me and said, so have you witnessed anybody in Walmart yet? And I went, all right, well, now it's on, you know? And, and so, so they went this way, I went that way, and the lady who fixed my watch band ultimately was hearing the gospel. I mean, here it is, I'm going to give it. So I saw them later, and they were saying, you know, um, yeah, you know, they've been trying to witness, and we've talked to other, I've seen other people in our church family come up to me and say, yeah, I've tried to put myself out there and witness and share Christ, and so thank you for making that bold statement, but we need to be about that, because your faith will be so much more, more fulfilling if it's active, if it's out there. If you say, I don't have enough to, to give towards this, or to do, well, you do something by faith, and you go for it. And the Lord blesses and gives you that kind of James justification, that kind of vindication that you're the real thing. And it's an exciting way to live. Not living like a corpse, but living an active Rahab, Abraham-like faith. All right, now to the points. What does radical obedience look like for you? I'm just assuming the Holy Spirit's laying something on your heart that you need to consider doing. What does it look like? need to ponder that. Number two, are you willing to share Christ this week? Say, so, you know what, I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to make sure that, that I do it. And you know what, it really just takes the decision to say I'm going to do it to do it. And I have found that meeting people for the first time and sharing Christ is sometimes a lot easier than sharing Christ with somebody that's known you, warts and all, for a long time. Both scenarios apply. Number three, are you willing to share Christ with Rahab the prostitute? There's probably people that we have sort of sold short and said, well, you know, they're beyond help, but that's not the gospel. We need to be willing to share Christ with everybody. Number four, do you believe the gospel is powerful enough to save prostitutes, to save sinners? We should, Jesus did, and he witnessed to all kinds of people. He witnessed to the lawyer, to the doctor, to the prostitute, A to Z. It doesn't matter. These are creations of God that need the gospel. Number five, are you willing to welcome people into your life who aren't just like you, seeing past the barriers of social, um, socioeconomic, social strata, gender, culture, and upbringing? I hope so. This is the mind of Christ. This is what the word calls us to do for us to look alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, um, God, the transforming power of the gospel. And I pray that if there are people who do not yet know you, that you would draw them into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up. I'm going to have Elder Dave Parker hobble up to the stage um, just because I wanted to see him do it. Um, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're an evidence of God's grace, Dave. Let's close our service with prayer.